morning, good morning. Uh, I'm Ryan. Uh, my wife Kate and I have the joy of co-leading this house together, and so we want to welcome you in. Just so excited to be with you today. Um, before we dive in, i got a few highlights that I want to give you, some things I want to chat about with you. Um, one is just to say it's good to be back. We went on a little bit, Kate and I and the kids went on a road trip. We went to um, Fernie in Canada. Um, yeah, Fernie. Any Ferniites? Uh, okay, it was rad. Uh, we drove in a giant circle. We put almost 3,000 miles on the old GMC Yukon. Uh, we did 11 days of driving and staying in different places, and we managed probably less than two or three meltdowns per day, which was a huge win. Yeah. That was me. The kids, <laughs> the kids did way better than that. I was, I was just trying to manage myself. We, uh, we got to see Glacier National Park. We got to see the Canadian Rockies. We got to uh, just hang out, do a lot of hikes, and, and uh, did some fishing. And then we went to Silverwood Amusement Park. Um, anyone been to Silverwood? Okay, it's as popular as Fernie. Yeah. It, okay, it's like the Walmart of Disneyland or the Disneyland Walmart or something like that. It's, it's pretty legit. I was surprised at Silverwood. So if you ever are in... Um, Sandpoint, Idaho, which I, Sandpoint, Idaho, really cool town. Uh, uh, there's a lake there, and you don't know how to pronounce it, but it's actually Pondere, um, and it's spelled not like that at all. Um, and then there's an amusement park there called Sandpoint. Sandpoint? No, Silverwood. Silverwood. You got to check it out. It's pretty, pretty rad. Gabriel rode the best roller coaster of his life. Woo! All right. Um, so anyway, it's good to be back. Middle schoolers, are you here? Do you want some donuts? Uh, do you want to learn about Jesus? Okay. Oh, the key of discipleship. You feed people. You feed them. Then you feed them spiritually. All right, middle schoolers, you can go with Andy. He's back there. He's ready for you. What's that? Steel. No, where's Fort Steele? Oh, I missed a fort. I miss, I love forts. I make, them, I make them with my kids all the time. Yeah, it's a big fort. Like cushions on the side of the road and stuff, rad. Cars, old cars. Yeah. Um, no, I don't know, I don't know what we saw. There was a point when you're driving like eight hours a day that you're not really seeing anything. You're just yelling at children, stop it. It's like preemptive yelling. I got to the point where I was so bad I was yelling at them preemptively. They'd like start to have fun. I'd be like, knock it off. <laughs> They're like, dad, what? I was like, I know what happens. <laughs> you're having fun. And then like two minutes later, you're screaming and killing each other. So no fun. We won't. <laughs> I don't know what we saw. We had a great time. It was an amazing, amazing, amazing trip. And uh, tons of rad memories were made. Um, so we have, I want to share with you as we, as we are in the middle part of August, um, Abide, our worship and prayer night is coming up on August 24th at 6.30 p.m. We want to invite you out to that once a month. It's a time of extended ministry. It's, an, it's a time of wor extended worship. It's a time of prayer for us to get together as a house um, at 6.30 on Thursday night, August 24th. Um, for about an hour and a half, couple hours of just being in here. It's, a, it's not like a start-to-finish time. It's a come and hang out and linger time. If you want to come in the beginning, stay the whole time you can. If you can come for part of it, we would love to have you there. Um, we believe that the Lord is digging new wells or redigging wells in our house of prayer and of worship and continuing to do that. So we want to we'll make sure that we highlight those times and that you're able to come and be a part of that. That is a corporate gathering for the, for the week. Uh, our Community Life Sunday, our Community Life Week, we have... We don't always have a corporate gathering on that Sunday morning because a lot of times we're doing outreach or other things. So we've moved our corporate gathering to that Thursday night, August 24th. It's time for all of us to be there. It's not like, oh, yeah, it's just a few people having a, 10 people having a Bible study or 10 people doing prayer. This is our, it is our corporate gathering for that week, and we want you to be there, be a part of it with us. They've been such powerful times, such important times. And we're believing that what God is doing on those abide nights is actually what's feeding into what's happening on Sunday mornings, not the other way around. So come and, and dig that well with us. And then um, Community Life Sunday, August 27th, the Sunday, uh, August 27th at 10 o'clock, 
We're going to come here. We're going to do some Liberty Park outreach, and we are also going to, I don't know if you guys have noticed it, but the Central Food Park, as we are calling it, has been opened up during the week, and we have food trucks out there by the big tent and in that area out there. And what we're trying to do is create a place where community comes together, where people are coming together around food trucks. We're supporting small businesses. We have a really rad vision for that whole space out there to be utilized for our city and to be utilized for entrepreneurs and small businesses. And uh, we want to serve them. And the way that we're going to serve them is that we're going to get together. And one thing that's lacking right now for the food trucks during the week is a place for people to sit. We have some of our uh, plastic chairs, which are sweet. We have some of our plastic tables out there. Not the nicest, not the most inviting. Um, we're trying to up the quality level of the whole experience. And so what we're going to do is we are going to buy a whole bunch of wood and supplies, and we're going to get our tools out, and we're going to make a huge workstation so that we can build like six or eight 10-foot picnic tables, really nice picnic tables out there for people to be able to have to hang out in the afternoons and in the evenings and for different concerts, events, and food things we're going to be doing out there. So it's just a way to serve the food trucks that are out there, the customers that are coming and say, we see you, we value you. We don't want this to be about making a buck. We want this to be about creating community. And so the way that you do that is hospitality, right? And so one of the ways that we are creating hospitality is by spending some hopefully not blood, but some sweat, and hopefully not tears. Um, and we're going to build those benches, those picnic tables for, for that area out there. So come on Community Life Sunday, August 27th at 10 o'clock. Um, we will be doing that together. We'll have workstations set up and some cutting and some staining and some putting together. It'll be red. Uh, and then I want to give you um, a giving update for Living Waters. I know that one of the things that we've been talking about is just continuing as disciples to increase the opportunity that we have to give into this house. And Living Waters is sustained by your generosity. We don't have any other real streams of income. And so we do ask that you give. And, and as always, you can give online. You can give at the black boxes in the back. You can do that. But what we really want to talk about is just the testimony of your generosity. And one of the things I want to share with you, I, I don't want to dive too far into this because I can get way off track. But if you remember the season of, of covid I don't know if you guys remember that. Um, yeah, sorry. I'm sorry to bring it up. I know for me, for many, it's not really something that we love to even think about or talk about, especially, I mean, it's so layered for me. It's multifaceted for me, for sure. But one of the, maybe one of the most difficult things I've done in my, in my professional life, I don't know if it's professional life, but whatever, is to, is to try to lead a church through that season of time when I have people saying, you got to do this, and other people saying, you have to do this, and we need to do this, and we need to do that, and don't do this, don't do that, do this, and it was just, it was a big old mess, and um, just insert your own word in the blank, I'm going to say it was a big old mess, and, um, and so during that season, we sought the Lord, and uh, brilliant, right? Um, and so we, for the first time in 20 years of ministry, I was like, man, I'm in over my head. I better pray. Um, and uh, and we, we really sought the Lord to just say, God, how do you want us to go through this? And so he gave us a few ways to posture our heart, ways to walk through the whole season. And here's the cool, quick, cool testimony is that through that entire season, whether we were, we were gathering together, meeting together in smaller groups, meeting together outside, whatever it was that we were doing, people continued. You guys continued to stick with us. You continued to give. You continued to partner with us. And so we came out the other side of that season, I believe, just refined and more in love with Jesus and hopefully more in love with each other and more in love with the whole idea of community because when we don't have it, sometimes we when we don't have it, we realize how desperately we need it. And we come out the other side in a new place with new vision, new heart, new perspective. But during that time, because of your faithfulness and because of your generosity, we were able to keep our entire team intact and on the payroll and all of that stuff through the entire journey. And now we come out, which is so great. Great. It gets better. Um, can, you, can you grab me my water? Or somebody can grab it. I forgot it. Um, and so because of that, we're on the other side of it. And as you know, we've been in um, some, some really, oh, mercy girl. Uh, so we come out the other side. 
And we've been in some really hard financial times. And we've talked about that. We've shared about that. That like giving has been consistent, but there's been dips and there's been changes and there's been shifts in people's lives and shifts in, in where people are at and, and all, all sorts of things. That, and, um, and so as I've shared about that, we've just been seeking the Lord. God, we want, we need a, a financial breakthrough. We need a financial miracle. We know that on the horizon there's a, there is a shift coming in, in just the way that as a community we support the work that God is doing at Living Waters. And we've sensed that. But man, Lord, how do we get to that place where we see the good is coming and we're in the challenging time how do we get across that right you guys have so many of us have experienced that in our personal life of like i have a promise from the lord i know that he's doing good things but the reality is is that i'm right here right now how do i get there without completely losing my faith or having a shipwreck or whatever and so we were in that season and um and so andy and i found this thing um employee retention tax credit uh, and, and, and essentially what it was was, hey, if you kept your employees during the entire time of COVID, you might be eligible to receive some kind of tax credit back um, because you were able to do that. So good on you guys for continuing to give because we were able to keep all of our employees here during that time. And so we applied for it, and then we didn't hear anything from them at all. They were like, oh, you'll hear, at first, it was like, you read the fine print, it's like, you'll hear back in 12 weeks, and then we applied, and then it, we got an email that's like, we're, we're backed up to, to nine years or something, I don't know, whatever. It's like, <laughs> I was so excited, because when we found it, I thought, hey, if we get some money back, this might cover like a month of budget or something. This would be rad in the short term to get us to where we're going. Then we applied for it, and they were like, oh, we're having a hard time turning these around, it'll be 18 months or something, like, shoot, okay, so that's no longer a solution. Throw that on the back burner. Keep praying and seeking the Lord of how do we walk through this hard season right now, 2023, summer of 2023, where our giving is down by 40% or whatever it is. How do we get through this, Lord? And then um, I think I was, I was meeting with somebody. They never said anything to us. I was meeting with somebody, and, and then someone slid something under the door. Why am I? Why am I it hasn't been so many weeks that I've been up here. I'm literally stepping on things. It's not that hard. Someone is sliding something under my door. And then they slide something else under my door. And then they slide something else under my door. And they slide something else under the door. They slid. I think it was Kim and Andy. They were like, doo, 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 doo. so excited. They slid five checks under our door from the U.S. government for $144,000. And then I think we got another check like a week later for $15,000 more. I don't know what's happening. Um, I don't know if we walked through the COVID season correctly. I don't know if we did the things that we should have done or shouldn't have done or whatever. I know that we sought the Lord, that we, we, made, we stayed in his peace, we stayed in his presence, and we stayed in his directive. That's all we did. We just said, Lord, we just want to be right with your heart and do what you're asking us to do. And you guys continued to give faithfully to the point that we navigated that whole season without having to lay people off and let people go. Our whole team came through it. But because of that, we were able to apply for this program, get some money, which is such a blessing to us, such a relief to us. And that allows us to be able to just put that into savings, put that in to be able to cover some of our shortfalls in the monthly budget, while also continuing to ask ourselves, like, how do we partner with what God is doing in this place, in our resources, in our finances? How do we give? We want to be a people of generosity. But I wanted to share that testimony because really it's about you. It's about you guys giving faithfully through that whole season. I know it was such a challenge. It was challenging for us. I can't imagine how challenging it was for you guys and just to continue to be here, be a part of Living Waters and to give such a rad story, such a rad testimony. So thank you. Thank you for that. We really appreciate it, and I wanted to share that with you. Um, okay, so parables of Jesus. Um, the reason we're doing the parables of Jesus as a series is because as we came out of Galatians, we studied the book or the letter of Galatians together, and as we came out of that, it ends, it sort of wraps up, it culminates with this instruction or this encouragement that says, remember, God can't be mocked, you will reap what you sow. And not as a threat, because he goes on to say, in that, in that same chapter, Paul says, hey, remember, God can't be mocked, you reap what you sow, but this do not get tired. Do not get weary of doing what you know is right. 
of following the way of Jesus, of sowing into the healthy things spiritually. Don't get tired of doing that because in due season, there will be a reward. There will be a bounty. There will be a fruitfulness that comes from that. And so as we look at Galatians and the end of Galatians, we come out of that with, with that encouragement on our hearts and minds to say, okay, what does it look like to be faithful in doing the things that sow into the spiritual health of my heart, my mind, my life, and those around me. I want to be faithful in continuing to do that. What does that look like? Well, that looks like following the way of Jesus into the simplest of things of saying, Jesus, we want to follow you. We want to follow your heart. We want to follow your word. We want to follow your instructions. We want to follow your life, and we want to follow your example And I believe that in doing that, that is the small things. That is the seed, the spiritual seed, that in due season will reap a huge reward for you, for your life, for those around your life, for the health of our city, for the health of the kingdom, and for those purposes. And so that's why we're doing the parables of Jesus, because we want to follow his teachings. The problem is, as we said a few weeks ago, the problem is, is that Jesus taught in parables, And because he taught in parables, it is often very confusing for us to try to understand what was it that Jesus was teaching. What are these parables? Over a third of the time that Jesus was teaching, he was teaching in parables. And parables, we defined it as this a few weeks ago in the introduction. Parables are subversive and inclusive stories of an upside-down kingdom. Subversive and inclusive. Why are they subversive? Because he is coming, proclaiming, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. He's saying this in the greatest kingdom of his day that is ruling over the largest portion of the entire world. And Jesus is coming, subverting that man-made kingdom. And he's saying there's a new kingdom that has arrived. So he's subverting that kingdom. And he's saying repent and turn to this kingdom is at hand. And he's saying it is for everyone. So the reason that we say it is inclusive is that it wasn't just for the elite. It wasn't just for the ruling class. It wasn't just for the hyper-religious. He was coming for everyone, the highways and the byways, the people out in the streets doing life and living in their own way. He was coming for them. This was a kingdom for everyone to be involved in. Matthew 13, it says that Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. I want us to capture that reality as we study parables, is that Jesus is telling the secrets that have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. And this is one of the rare circumstances as we talk about inductive Bible study, as we talk about not reading ourselves into the text, as we talk about context, 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 to, to, to have biblical literacy. We have to understand the cultural context. We have to understand the linguistic context. We have to understand the, the historical context. And, and, and in most situations and in most cases, I'm going to be telling you as you're studying your word to go back to the original reader and the original writer of that passage, empowered by the Holy Spirit to write that down and say, that is what this passage meant. What it meant when they wrote it, what it meant when they heard it. But in the circumstances of often in the Gospels and in the parables, we have a little bit of an advantage in the interpretive process. Why? Because we can see who Jesus is, what he has accomplished, and the fullness of his story allows us a viewpoint that those who were listening to Jesus didn't have, right? So what they heard when he told them a parable was often, is often though similar, and while we are digging down to that root meaning, it is also different for us because we see it through the lens of the completed work of Jesus, and that helps us understand it with a different layer and a different slant on it because he is uncovering the secrets that have been laid down from the foundation of the world. And that secret is the person, the presence, the life, the death, the resurrection, the outpouring of Jesus and his spirit, the reconciliation to God. And so that's what he is revealing as he is telling these parables. He spoke in parables because what he was doing was so different, so explosive, and so dangerous that the only way he could talk about it was through stories. A new kingdom had come. A new king had arrived. And what Jesus was accomplishing was far greater than what they could have imagined, asked, imagined, or comprehended. That's why looking back for us, looking back through Jesus, we have a fuller, a more complete view of what Jesus was doing, saying, and teaching. 
So the English word parable is a translation from a Greek word that means to set beside. So the word functions, in the Greek, the word functions as a comparative term. It is to set beside, side by side, or in these, these comparison of similarities, it is the parallelism of two things that are, being, that are being placed side by side. So the central message of the parables of Jesus was related to the kingdom of God and how it was overlaid onto the kingdoms, kingdoms of man, onto that reality, the reality of the kingdom being overlaid or running parallel to the reality of what they knew and what they were experiencing. And that is what the parables were accomplishing. He was showing the parallels of the two kingdoms that were running simultaneously by telling these parables. These were insights. These weren't just great anecdotal moral stories for us to take a lesson away from. He was truly uncovering a completely radical different reality of a kingdom that had come and of a king that was setting all things right. That's why Jesus always said, often throughout, throughout the Gospels, he said, he who has ears, let him hear. And so what is happening as we, if we're reading the parables, if we're reading these stories detached from that theme of his kingdom present, his kingdom come, his kingship, and his sacrificial, and his life and sacrifice on the cross. If we read it separate from that, we can detach these, that reality from what we're learning, and we can start to turn it into just a lesson that you and I take away, a, a nice moral story. But rather, what I want us to be able to do is just to open our hearts, to have ears to hear, to have eyes to see the reality of what Jesus was revealing. So that when we say, the promise is, is that if we sow in the Spirit, that we will, and we do, in due season, we don't get weary, we don't give up, that we just follow the way of Jesus, we follow the way of Jesus, that we are going to learn from him through these parables. But we're not just going to learn behaviors and neat moral stories. We're going to learn from him an entirely different way of seeing, viewing, and doing life individually and with each other and with our king. So that brings us to Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I want to read this to you. This is out of the NIV. And, I, and, I, and it'll be up on the screen, but if you'd like to turn there, Luke 10, verse 25 through 37 is going to be our passage of study today. It says this. On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to, to test Jesus. He said, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So again, one of the things we talked about in the, in the first week that we talked about parables is one of the reasons we get parables wrong is that we turn them into how do I get into an eternal kingdom as opposed to how do I access a present kingdom, okay? And so this is where we, parables are often confusing to people because they're thinking about it as like, if I can figure out this parable, it's a ticket to eternal life. It's a ticket to heaven as opposed to if I can figure out this parable, it is an access point to the kingdom coming. His will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the parables have to have it. We have to have a switch. But this, this teacher, this, uh, or sorry, this expert of the law, a lawyer of their time, a lawyer not of like civil law, but a lawyer of religious law, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he's asking Jesus, how do I get into, basically, how do I get the golden ticket to, to, to heaven? And, um, and Jesus asks him this. He says, what, what is written in the law? He replied, this is what really smart people do when you have a conversation with them is that they ask you questions and they answer questions with questions. This is why I never like talking with Corey. Uh, Corey is my favorite and he always asks me questions and I'm like, uh, hey, you have an answer for that, right? And he's like waiting and I'm like, uh, I'll venture this. And then we have a rad conversation because we are learning as we ask questions. And this is what Jesus is doing is he's not just giving out the answer is he's asking a question which draws the brain and the heart into the conversation and allows that person to engage further than just, oh, I want to be, I want to take some information from you. And so he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered him, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. This is Deuteronomy 6.4. This is a verse that is foundational to their lives. And then he went on, he added a different verse to it, Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this, and you will be fine. Oh, sorry, not fine. I don't know where I got that. It's, let me just lean a little closer. Do this and you will 
live. So he didn't say, and you will have eternal life. He didn't answer him the question because he was saying, I want to take it to heaven. I want to take it into the eternal kingdom. And Jesus is saying the eternal kingdom is here present right now. Eternal life isn't something that you access once you're dead. Eternal life is something you access through the death of Jesus. And so what he's trying to share with them is the reality of that eternal kingdom that he brought to bear upon them. And so he didn't say, this is what gets you eternal life. He says, this is what gets you, this is how you live, the fullness of life, the John 10.10, that that you would have life and have life abundant. That as he says in Matthew 19.17, he says, that you would enter into life. That's the same word that he uses there in the Greek in Matthew 19, 17, as it is uh, in this passage. Enter, if you do this, you will live, that you will enter into life. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Great question. So the racial reality of the time, just so that we understand it, that we are reading into an extremely broken fragmented racial reality in, this, in the context of this passage. When he said, who is my neighbor? At their worst, we have to understand that the ruling religious class, they confined the word neighbor to their fellow Jews only. So some of them said that it would be, even they even took it so far as to say it would be illegal to help a Gentile woman during childbirth because you would be helping bring another Gentile into the world. So this is an extreme case, but this is the racial reality that Jesus is addressing and speaking into in this context. I do not want us to miss that reality of the challenge that Jesus is giving to that concept and to that heart. And so when he says, who is my neighbor, he is saying, surely you are saying, I'm sorry, whenever I say that line, I just think of airplane and I go, don't call Jesus, surely. Um, Surely you're not telling me that my neighbor is someone other than the Jews. I have narrowed my neighbor down to just my fellow Jews. And he is saying, let me answer this question. Who is my neighbor with a story? So against that backdrop, he said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, and he bandaged his wound. He poured on oil and wine, and then he put that man, the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, which is two days' wages, and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers, Jesus asked. The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So a couple of real quick historical context pieces on here. The, the location of the story that Jesus told was very familiar to those who were listening to him. That road from Jer- Jerusalem to Jericho would have been one that was walked. Jerusalem had the temple. This is where the priests and the Levites performed their duties of the, of the Mosaic law, of the temple system. This is where they went to do that. And a lot of them lived in Jericho and traveled to Jerusalem to do that. And so there would be people traveling this road all the time. Except the problem was is that people knew that this was not a safe road. So generally they would travel to together or in groups. They didn't travel by themselves because they knew that if you travel by yourself, you could get robbed. Why would you get robbed? Because I believe the elevation changed. And some of you have probably, if you've been to Israel, you've probably walked on this road or or done this this path. But it's a 3,600 foot elevation change from Jerusalem to Jericho. So it's just through the desert. It's full of switchbacks. and, And the whole walk is setting up places for people to ambush you. And so people knew you, you don't walk this road by yourself. People knew that this is a familiar thing that would happen, is that someone would be robbed. A few points that I want us to make sure we understand is that Jesus didn't say what ethnicity or background the person was who got robbed. He said a person. A person was walking on the road. So those who are hearing can insert themselves. They can imprint onto that whatever they feel like is, 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 is most familiar to them. And so when he's teaching Jews, of course, they would be like, well, most of the people who walk that road are Jews. So they're imagining in their mind a Jewish man is walking this road, and he gets jumped by thieves. He gets robbed. And so all of his... Anything that would have marked him, his, his, his wealth, his class, his ethnicity, all of that was stripped off of him. He's just naked. 
He's laying there on the ground, and he's beaten almost to death. So that's it. There's no real defining characteristics of this person that would give someone who walks up to them a quick idea of who they are, what their background is, what their social status is, anything like that. Just a human beaten on the side of the road, left for dead. So I want us to understand that. The robbery of a lone stranger going down the road would not have been a surprise for them to hear in this story. So who, would have, who walked this road with this man? So the priest, this, the first character to pass by as this, the half-dead victim was the priest. He might have been returning from performing temple duties at Jerusalem. Uh, priests were members of the tribe of, uh, of Levi. Why didn't he stop? I want to explain this to you as clearly as I can. We don't know. <laughs> Listen, people have made entire sermons out of why the priest didn't stop, and then they have ladled religiosity onto people like, oh, don't be like that, that priest who didn't stop because of this reason, this reason, and this reason. Clearly, he was, too, he was too worried about fulfilling the Leviticus laws of not touching a dead person so that he wouldn't have to have his rituals done for a, for a week and all that stuff. We don't know. We don't know. It's not in there. So I think it's wise for us as, as we interpret Scripture to not read into things that are not in Scripture. And so I can, I can make conjecture about it, and I can make a great message, and you could too, about why the priest who is representing religion and the Mosaic law and the temple system and the sacrificial system, why he didn't stop. I don't think we need to read into this text because I think we just need to go to Matthew 23 and get a very clear idea of what Jesus thought about the priests and why maybe they wouldn't have stopped. Read it. You'll understand where Jesus is coming from in Matthew 23 of what he believes about those who would say, be pious on one side and be close to the word, following all of the rules, but not acting out in compassion. But we can't read into that because we don't know. We just know that Jesus put this person in there as an, as an expectation that those listening to this story would have been like, oh, there's a priest coming, good. The priest live under the law of love. They Surely, again, surely, the priest will stop. And in the way that Jesus told the story, you have the, oh, oh, wait, that didn't happen. So the priest goes by. Okay, so the man crosses over to the other side. Maybe it was fear of the robbers being around. Maybe it was concern for his purity. We just are not entirely sure. There's a lot we can, we can, we could speculate and talk about, about that, but I think we would do better to just, as I said, to look at Jesus' other teachings and interactions with the, with the priests and with the Pharisees to understand. Um, what about the Levite? Again, uh, the Levites were descendants of the house of Levi. They were part of the tribe of Israel. They were part of the priestly community. Their role was to help or assist the priest in preparing the animals, the grain, the birds for the sacrifice, According to Numbers 18.3, they, they couldn't take part in the offerings themselves, but they were affected by the purity laws and the purity rituals. Short version is basically if you touch something that's unclean or dead, you cannot go in and do the sacrifices. You have to wait a week. You have to go through all of the, the process of all of that. And so they would have been subject to that as well. But, it, but we don't know. We don't know if that's why he stopped or didn't stop. What we do have is Jesus, once again, giving us someone in the story that we would expect to help this man, and instead of helping this man, goes his own way. So then we have the Samaritan. The, Samaritan were, the Samaritans were viewed as half-Jews at best. They were excluded by the Jews from covenant pro promises. They had been at odds with each other since the divided kingdom, since the Babylonians and the Assyrians conquered the northern tribe and the southern tribes of Israel, took them into captivity, um, brought certain groups of them in to, to intermingle uh, with so that they would create a different culture. This is the way that you assimilate people in that time into culture. If you conquer someone, you have children and families with them, and then before long, they are no longer wanting to rebel against you. They feel like they are a part of you. And so because of those things that took place, going all the way back to that, you have these groups of people that have been at odds with one another. The Jews who believe that they have the purity of the Mosaic law and the temple in Jerusalem and the religion of that and that they are following that and that they have remained pure from that defilement and then those who have uh, intermixed with different cultures and who have a slightly different take on 
Abrahamic covenant, on that religion, the Mosaic religion, but yet so similar, yet so different. So you have this huge gap that had been forming for hundreds and hundreds of years. To say there was hatred and animosity and disconnect would be an understatement. That division had been ongoing for generations. In fact, the backdrop of this story is Luke 9. As the time approached, because Jesus, on the, in this story, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. And as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set up out for Jerusalem. This is Luke 9, 51. And he sent messengers ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Samaritan village wouldn't welcome Jesus in because he was going to Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, this is James and John's big famous moment, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? It's a good one. We can laugh at them, but you know that many of us, when we get ticked off, we're watching something, we're looking at culture, and we're like, hey, Lord, you want me to call down fire and destroy them? This is the level of disconnect that had happened. They wouldn't let Jesus into their city because he was going to Jerusalem. What was their response? Murder. Hatred and murder. And Jesus turned and rebuked them. And then he and his disciples went to another village. So as this is the story that's in the back of Jesus' mind about the Samaritans and the disconnect, he's now going to tell this story to his disciples one chapter later. So have that as your context to understand the level of disconnect that's going on. No one would have expected Jesus, a, a, a Jewish teacher, a rabbi, to give a positive picture or to put a positive character of a Samaritan. And so this would have been an absolute bombshell to the audience. For us to understand the context of that, we need to hear that. So as we said, all of the defining characteristics have been removed from the, from the victim. Clothes, quality, wealth, poor, just naked and, and beaten. The story wasn't only about crossing racial barriers or dividing lines. It was about loving whoever is in need that he came across, that this Samaritan man came across, regardless of those things. When we look at this passage of Scripture, we are challenged, of course. We are challenged to say, okay, am I willing to help people when I see them in need? Am I willing to care for others regardless of their social status or the disconnect or the, the flag that they fly or the beliefs that they have? Am I looking for, am I saying, hey, who's my neighbor, Jesus? Is it, it's really just the people that I'm the most comfortable with, right? I don't like them. I like these people. These are my neighbors. I will serve them. And if I see something happen to them and one of them and they fall and they need help, I will help them. But, but this is my neighbor, correct? And he is saying, anyone in need, regardless of all of those defining factors that you would have as humans, is the, that is who you are to help. So there is this reality to this story that is important for us to grasp. Three travelers see the man, the priest and the Levite, who are representatives of the law and the Mosaic Covenant. They see a reason for caution. They see a reason for self-protection. For whatever reason, they see a, mo a moment to walk away. But the Samaritan, who is excluded from the covenant, who is an enemy to the Jews, feels compassion, and he stops and he helps the man. From the example of the priest and the Levite, we can look at that and say to ourselves, whether this was the case or not, is there places of religiosity in me that would allow me to walk by someone who is hurting and broken and justify me going on my way? and passing them by in their moment of need, because that is clearly what did happen. Great religious men chose to justify their actions, to walk around the person in need, and continue on their way. Is there any part of my heart, my mind, my life, that might be reflected in that behavior? And that's good for us to ask that question. It's good for us to read these parables and have those questions. I'm serving you, God. I don't have time for that right now. I'm obeying you, God. I don't have time for that right now, that person, that thing. I'm taking care of those closest to me. That's what really matters. Okay, so there is that. From the Samaritan, we learn that one must show compassion to those in need, regardless of the religious, ethnic barriers that divide people. We get that. This is the way of Jesus that we're talking about. 
to love your enemies, bless your enemies, pray for your enemies, to go past the dividing lines and love people well. Not out of some sort of hallmarky, like, you're great, I think you're awesome, but to truly be driven by compassion that only Jesus and his spirit and his presence in our life can bring. From the man in the ditch, I think, though, emerges the greatest and most important lessons for us. Even one's enemies is the neighbor. But deeper than that, who are we in this story? Now, I know I've taught you week in and week out, don't read yourself into, into Scripture. Stop it. Stop it. But let's just this one time. No, oh, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. As we're reading a scripture like this, to read it in context, we should be thinking, okay, who is hearing, who is the audience that's hearing this message or this story? And then where would they read themselves into this story? So the Jewish people who are listening would be reading themselves as the traveler. The religious people who are there challenging Jesus, the lawyers, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees in that group, they would be seeing themselves in the, in, in the priest, in the Levite who, is, who goes past. They'd be like, oh, Jesus, I don't like this story. And the, the Jewish person is reading this, and they, they're saying, I am, the, I am, oh, look it, I'm going to go on a trip to the, oh, I'm getting beat up. I'm left on the side of the road. What's going to happen to me? And then a Samaritan. Those who are listening to Jesus that would be outsiders are hearing themselves being centered as the heroes of the story, being invited into something that they are generally excluded from, and that there is a powerful moment in the way that Jesus is telling a story that is both challenging and also inviting that I think is worth us saying, how would I read, where would I find myself in that audience of people who are listening to Jesus? Too often, I think we read ourselves as if we're the Samaritan. We feel called or compelled by this story to help even our enemies, which, of course, is following the way of Jesus. As I said, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. Like, that is the way of Jesus, that if we will put into practice in due season, we will see fruitfulness coming from following the way of Jesus. And while that is the way of Jesus, I do not believe that is why Jesus was telling this story. This is more of a story that I would say is like the prodigal son or the lost coin or the lost sheep than some sort of story to give us an anecdotal reason to take care of people who are our neighbors. Why? Because when we say we're the Samaritan, we are going, okay, God, I want to go out of this room and I want to help people around me. But if we read ourselves as the broken, the person who was beaten on the side of the road, then we begin to see a type of Jesus being revealed in the story of someone who comes to rescue us in our greatest place of need. We see someone who comes at risk to themselves, unexpected in the form that they arrive, to lift us out of the gutter, to lift us out of our place of death, to pour out oil and wine on us, to bandage us, to put us on a donkey, to put us, to carry us to a place of rest, to pay for our health and restoration, and to say, I will come back in three days' time, and if there is anything left to be paid, I will pay it. So what Jesus is doing in this story, if we say, oh, I'm the Samaritan and I need to learn to be nice to people around me, we are missing what Jesus is actually doing as he's saying, you are the one that is broken and beaten and neglected and naked and dying on the side of the road. You are the one in need of mercy and compassion and a savior. And the law is not going to save you. And religion is not going to save you. But in the unexpected form of someone who you are an enemy with, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In our minds, when we were separated and enemies in our thoughts and actions, he forgave us. Our enemy came and rescued us and picked us up off that broken road 
and carried us home into a place of restoration. The story that Jesus is telling in this parable is not to get us to be nice to people. It is to get us to understand our need for a Savior and our place in his story and the beauty of what Jesus has accomplished. Just as we love the prodigal son coming home to the father that runs to him, we should love this picture of Jesus in the Samaritan, who, by the way, they said, are you not a Samaritan filled with the demons? They believed that Jesus was a Samaritan because of the way that he mixed the religion, the way that he didn't quite follow the covenant and the way that they thought it should be. That in the form of, a, of that Samaritan, that good Samaritan, that he came and rescued. And so in the form of closing, I want to do this, if the worship team would come up. When we read the good Samaritan story, we should empathize first and foremost with the man beaten and thrown to the side of the road. And why does it matter that we read ourselves into that place or that we see, sorry, not read ourselves into that place, that we see Jesus in that point, in that place, in that Samaritan? It's because I do believe that there is a challenge in this story for us to stop allowing division and hatred and suspicion and fear and judgment to define who our neighbor is. I believe there is a call, in the, an echo in this story of Je that Jesus told that tells us we have to love people regardless of where they find themselves and regardless of how we view ourselves, that we have to be selfless and compassionate in the way that we love people. But why? Because we first see in this story that that is what Jesus did for us. We cannot give away what we do not first receive. And if we are trying to give away compassion and serving people out of re religious behavior, we are giving love to others that we have not yet received ourselves. And when we do that, we live in incongruity. We live in religiosity. The reason that we need, mm, let's not say that. The reason that we often have so, such an arduous journey towards inner healing within Christianity is because we are often giving away what Jesus wants us to first receive before it lands on us. And when you give to others, when you try to give to others what you are withholding from yourself, there is a lack of sincerity and congruity that tells you that this is to do this out of a behavior for them, what I am not worthy of receiving myself. And until our worthiness is healed and we are able to receive the Samaritan Jesus coming to us and rescuing us and picking us up broken and dead and in need of a Savior, pouring out the oil and the wine upon us, taking us to that place of safety, paying for the price of our restoration until we can receive that fully for ourselves, then we must not try to give it away to others. And so my challenge to us this morning as we step into worship is simply to say there are places, it may not be your entire life, but I bet you there are places in your life that would be representative of that person who is robbed and beaten and forgotten and left for dead on the side of the road. And this morning, Jesus wants to come to that place, to that person, to you in that form, in that moment, in that place, heal you, rescue you, pour out his love and mercy upon you so that as, I, as you walk out of this door, that I can truly say to you, receive for yourself what you cannot earn, what you do not deserve, and then and only then, go and give it away to one other person. Find that person in your life who is beaten, forgotten, overlooked, left on the side of the road. There's your neighbor. But they're different from me. They have different beliefs from me. They have different values from me. They came up differently than me. They look different than me. They talk different than me. I don't care. That is your neighbor. But if we are going to have a kingdom impact, if we are going to sow in the spirit and have a return on that thing, then we have to be giving away out of what we have, in fact, received ourselves and not be in danger of religiosity that says it's okay if you don't get it as long as your neighbor gets it. That's not the Father's heart for you.
And so this morning as we worship, I just want Jesus, come and make yourself known in this place, in these moments. Those places in our heart and life that we have walked past, we don't want to touch them. They're too broken, they're too messy. We've gotten ourselves into this mess, we've done this. This is our fault. Whatever it is, whatever excuse we, we have to leave parts of our heart and our mind and our life broken on the side of the road. The anxiety, the fear, the doubt, the sin, that thing that we keep coming back to, that person that we keep coming back to, whatever it is, that behavior, that anger, We can continue just bypassing it or we can invite you to come an unexpected savior to heal us, to pour out your kindness, your compassion, your mercy and your grace upon us. That we would receive it even in that area that we are so tempted to just walk by day after day after day. So I don't wanna belabor the point with a whole bunch of words so I just wanna say Jesus come and make yourself known in this way. Show us these places Pour your love out upon us. Heal us, restore us, so that when we do walk out of here, we have compassion on those who are also hurting and broken and wounded. And that it would not be out of religion, but it would be out of compassion overflowing, that we would act as Jesus, as you, to come even to our enemies, to love them and care for them in their moments of need. That we would give out of what we have received.